Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm very pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. How do you open your heart, feed your soul, and challenge your mind in a matter of minutes? What can break up the concrete of our habitual perception and turn our trusty assumptions on their head? A poem. A poem is a form of revolution. Eve Ensler writes, Poetry is the language of our time. It is a verbal excavation, digging us into and under that which is inarticulate, that which cannot be said but can be felt, that which cannot be stated but can be conjured. Poetry is a form of revolution. It arranges our thinking, our perception, our dialogue. It takes us out of the literal so that we can see what is real. Today, I want to explore the revolutionary nature of poetry. The need for revolution as transformation of consciousness in our culture is always on my mind. As a mythologist, it's my mission to navigate and instigate it. And my participation in these times, which I would say are times of either breakdown or breakthrough. Mythology is really important to this mission of change and transformation. Mythology shapes your worldview. It is your worldview. And how you answer life's big questions matters. We all need to understand this right now. When we believe in mythologies without realizing or admitting to ourselves that that's in fact what they are, they get rigid. They become ideologies. And that is a problem. There's all different kinds of fundamentalism, by the way. It's not just religious. But a myth that's treated as a myth, a myth that is kept alive, contains so much ancient wisdom and the depths of human experience, so many lessons that could be very useful to us today. A story, a good story, is both a teacher and a mirror. Now, as we had discovered in the first three programs of this series, poetry, a poem, is also a catalyst for inspiration, insight, comfort, and potentially a pathway to the transcendent. In the second show in this series, which was the last half of my conversation with Philip Rosenberg, we noted that a poem can be about anything. Any topic can be the ostensible subject of a poem. But poetry has a special relationship to language, and it is the attention to words and their nuanced meanings and the discipline of the poetic structure or form, whichever one the poet might adopt or create, that is the heart of the poetic sensibility, alongside the use of metaphor and subtle, well, it's not always so subtle, stretches of meaning. 
This special relationship to language is part of the revolutionary potential of a poem. A poem has a rhythm that gets into the unconscious and into the body. A poem penetrates you. It takes you into what has been repressed or denied or what is simply unknown. For many of us, this includes the body, which is often forgotten or forbidden territory. A poem is a form of revolution because of its slipperiness, the multiplicity of meaning. Remember that the language, language is connected to the trickster. That slipperiness reveals to us the sharp edge, or maybe it's the blurred line, between truth and fabrication. In many poems, you feel the poet discovering or tracking down a truth, putting truth into words, speaking truth to him or herself, to us, to the collective others. What has to be said in a poem may be said in a poem because it can't be expressed in any other way. And it's a short step then to say that what is said by a poem is said because it must be. Poems, like stories, are places to remember, commemorate, and share what has been left out of sanctioned communications. And in that way, poetry is subversive. So I'm going to give you some examples and not just keep talking here. I love this little poem by Lucille Clifton, entitled, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes. Clifton wrote many books of poetry, too, that were nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Her poem, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes, goes like this. They ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep on remembering mine. I'll read it again. They ask me to remember but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep on remembering mine. That's Lucille Clifton. Now, I also want to share one called The Man from Washington that was written by James Welch. James Welch is the author of Fool's Crow, which won the American Book Award. He was from Montana, and he was part Blackfoot. The Man from Washington. The end came easy for most of us, packed away in our crude beginnings in some far corner of a flat world. We didn't expect much more than firewood and buffalo robes to keep us warm. The man came down, a slouching dwarf with rainwater eyes, and spoke to us. He promised that life would go on as usual, that treaties would be signed, and everyone, man, woman, and child, would be inoculated against a world in which we had no part, a world of money, promise, and disease. Poetry is divinely subversive. Subversive because it unites the head and the heart and reminds us that feeling and thinking are not two separate operations. Subversive because ideas and objects and events and people come together in poems in ways that are verboten. 
A poem can speak the unspeakable and combine things to create something completely new. In this way, poetry can be profoundly unsettling. Metaphors are bridges, and they can take us into what's called limbic or liminal space. Over the threshold, into new worlds, the space between spaces, a place where the bottom drops out, or horizons widen. A couple of the poems that I'm going to read to you um, and the rest of this program that put me in that place where I'm not really sure which end is up, and you may have that experience too. Poems are subversive because they are free, free to write, to recite, and to love by anyone. You don't have to be a poet. You don't have to have special equipment. And poems resist commodification. Poems resist becoming commodities because they are a gift from the muse. They come to us and through us. That's what makes them divinely subversive conversation partners and teachers and lovers. You can have the sense, writing or reading poetry, just being with the poem, that you are in a larger conversation, a conversation with the unseen, with the muse, with the capital M, or with your muse, with the cosmic intentions or consciousness, or maybe it's the soul or the deep self with a capital S. Many poets, and some of us who are driven to write the occasional poem, feel compelled to do it visited by the poem, or unable to stop writing poetry. There's this really cool poem called My Poetry that I want to read you by Maria Herrera Sobeck that speak to this. My poetry follows me between tin cans, between chilies and tomatoes, apples and peaches, brooms and garbage that on another day were my only song. My poetry bursts out between cries of children and husbands hurt by the explosion of a pen that bleeds and leaves gutted worms on the page. My poetry assaults me among the river of embraces I receive from impatient lovers in desperate competition with my pen. Reading poetry aloud is one of the most powerful practices that I know. It's one pathway into the mythic realm, the realm of imagination, image, double vision, and communion with the world soul. You don't have to know what a poem means, quote-unquote, to be in touch with its power. The language can just roll over you like a wave, and the images can fill your mind's eye, and the rhythms can take you into the body, even if the poem is written in words that you don't understand. When I close this program every week with the words, keep the mystery in your life alive, I mean it. I do mean mystery. I'm talking about the other. The other with a thousand plus one names and more. And I do mean keep it alive. Resist the temptation to know it all, to pin it down, to call it just. That kind of diminishing happens all the time. And it's not a great story for living. That story about how it all got figured out once and for all. The story of an explainable cosmos is the story of a reducible life.
I feel like that's one of the threads in one of my favorite poems by Rainier Marie Rilke called Man Watching. One stanza of the poem, he says, When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. We are trained in reductionism, you know. We are trained in literalism. And all of those isms, those are dangerous right now. If what I'm saying interests you, then I invite you to check out my work at Mythic Mojo. Mythic Mojo is about learning to use the power of mythology and the mythological perspective to start a mini-revolution in consciousness. Yours and ours. Now, I'm going to read you some poems that I like. I'm not going to analyze them. I'm merely going to tell you now that I feel something beautiful and profound and challenging and true in each one of these poems. I feel an invitation to stretch myself and my assumptions. And I hear these poems and feel these poems as calls to revolution that I want to share with you. I'll start with a poem called Poetry by Pablo Neruda. And it was at that age poetry arrived in search of me. I don't know. I don't know where it came from, from winter or a river. I don't know how or when. No, they were not voices. They were not words, nor silence. But from a street I was summoned, from the branches of night, abruptly from the others, among violent fires, or returning alone. There I was without a face, and it touched me. I did not know what to say. My mouth had no way with names. My eyes were blind, and something started in my soul. Fever or forgotten wings. And I made my own way deciphering that fire, and I wrote the first faint line, faint, without substance, pure nonsense, pure wisdom, of someone who knows nothing. And suddenly I saw the heavens unfastened and open, and planets palpitating planetations, shadow perforated, riddled with arrows, fire and flowers, the winding night, the universe. And I infinitesimal being, drunk with the great starry void, likeness, image of mystery, I felt myself a pure part of the abyss. I wheeled with the stars. My heart broke free on the open sky. The next poem that I want to read you is by Stanley Kunitz. Kunitz was the 10th Poet Laureate of the United States, and uh, he wrote poetry well into his 90s. He said that he became a poet in his youth because he fell in love with language. And he remarked once that the deepest thing that he knew was that he was living and dying at once, and that his poetry, more often than not, was an attempt to report the dialogue between those two dynamics. This poem is called King of the River. If the water were clear enough, if the water were still, 
But the water is not clear. The water is not still. You would see yourself, slipped out of your skin, nosing upstream, slapping, thrashing, tumbling over the rocks till you paint them with your belly's blood. Thinned ego, yard of muscle that coils, uncoils. If the knowledge were given you, but it is not given, for the membrane is clouded with self-deceptions, and the iridescent image swims through a mirror that flows, you would surprise yourself in that other flesh, heavy with milt, bruised, battering toward the dam that lips the orgiastic pool. Come, bathe in these waters, increase and die. If the power were granted you to break out of yourselves, but the imagination fails and the doors of the senses close on the child within, you would dare to be changed as you are changing now into the shape you dread beyond the merely human. A dry fire eats you. Fat drips from your bones. The flutes of your gills discolor. You have become a ship for parasites. The great clock of your life is slowing down, and the small clocks run wild. For this you were born. You have cried to the wind and heard the wind's reply. I did not choose the way. The way chose me. You have tasted the fire on your tongue till it is swollen black with a prophetic joy. Burn with me. The only music is time. The only dance is love. If the heart were pure enough, but it is not pure. You would admit that nothing compels you anymore. Nothing at all abides but nostalgia and desire. That two-way ladder between heaven and hell. On the threshold of the last mystery, at the brute, absolute hour, you have looked into the eyes of your creature self, which are glazed with madness, and you say he is not broken, but endures, limber and firm, in the state of his shining, forever inheriting his salt kingdom, from which he is banished forever. I'd like to dedicate that poem to my friend Stephen Geringer, teller of the story Salmon Boy. This next one is by Rumi, translated by Coleman Barks, who is also a poet. It's called Split the Sack. And thank you to Cynthia Anderson for sharing this one with me recently. Why does the soul not fly when it hears the call? Why does a fish, gasping on land but near the water, not move back into the sea? What keeps us from joining the dance? The dust particles do. Look at their subtle motions in sunlight. We are out of our cages with our wings spread, yet we do not lift off. We keep collecting rocks and broken bits of pottery like children, pretending they are merchants. We should split the sack of this culture and stick our heads out. Look around. Leave your childhood. Reach your right hand up and take this book from the air. 
You do know right from left, don't you? A voice speaks to your clarity. Move into the moment of your death. Consider what you truly want. Now call out commands yourself. You are the king. Phrase your question and expect the grace of an answer. One of the resources that I most love that I've, I've already mentioned on this program is a book called Saved by a Poem, The Transformative Power of Words by Kim Rosen. And it was in that book that I found this poem by Naomi Shahib Nye. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. I want to read this next one because we are in spring, a time of rebirth, and this is my nod to Passover and to Easter. It's called Annunciation by Marie Howe. And uh, it's from the collection called The Kingdom of Ordinary Time. Even if I don't see it again, nor ever feel it, I know it is, and that if once it hailed me, it ever does. And so it is myself I want to turn in that direction, not as towards a place, but it was a tilting within myself as one turns a mirror to flash the light to where it isn't. I was blinded like that, and swam in what shone at me, only able to endure it by being no one, and so specifically myself, I thought I'd die from being loved like that. And now, Against Certainty, by Jane Hirschfield from the collection called After, Poems by Jane Hirschfield. 
There is something out in the dark that wants to correct us. Each time I think this, it answers that. Answers hard in the heart grammar strictness. If I then say that, it too is taken away. Between certainty and the real, an ancient anemone. When the cat waits in the path hedge, no cell of her body is not waiting. This is how she is able to so completely disappear. I would like to enter the silence portion as she does. To live amid the great vanishing as a cat must live, one shadow fully at ease inside another. I have one more for you today, and then this will be my closing poem. It's called Meditation at Lagunitas by Robert Hawes. All the new thinking is about loss. In this it resembles all the old thinking. The idea, for example, that each particular erases the luminous clarity of a general idea. That the clown-faced woodpecker probing the dead sculpted trunk of that black birch is, by his presence, some tragic falling off from a first world of undivided light. Or the notion that, because there is in this world no one thing to which the bramble of blackberry corresponds, a word is elegy to what it signifies. We talked about it late last night, and in the voice of my friend there was a thin wire of grief, a tone almost querulous. After a while I understood that, talking this way, everything dissolves. Justice, pine, hair, woman, you and I. There was a woman I made love to, and I remembered how, holding her small shoulders in my hand sometimes, I felt a violent wonder at her presence, like a thirst for salt, for my childhood river with its island willows, silly music from the pleasure boat, muddy places where we caught the little orange-silver fish called pumpkin seed. It hardly had to do with her. Longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. I must have been the same to her. But I remember so much, the way her hands dismantled bread, the thing her father said that hurt her, what she dreamed. There are moments when the body is as numinous as words, days that are the good flesh continuing. Such tenderness, those afternoons and evenings, saying blackberry, blackberry, blackberry. That's it for me today, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. I invite you to go to Myth in the Mojave on Facebook and share your favorite poems with me and others who have liked the page. A good poem is one of the best things to share with other people, especially friends. I'd also like to mention that there is a global movement called 100,000 Poets for Change which involves poets and musicians and artists from around the world creating 
celebrations and demonstrations to promote peace and, and sustainability. And the idea is to have these happen on September 27th, 2014. That is the next global event day. In the context of a poem as revolution, I wanted to be sure and tell you that. Radio Free Joshua Tree and Myth in the Mojave are made possible by generous donations from Mojave Wi-Fi, Joshua Treats Ice Cream, Pappy and Harriet's, Petersburg Realty, and listeners like you. I hope you'll support this unique community-based station by clicking on the Donate button on our website at www.rfjt.org. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music and to you for listening. Please tune in next week. And in the meantime, read a poem and happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.